Did you know that U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and Alexander Haig, then Richard Nixon's chief of staff, called a meeting in the late evening on October 24th, 1973, while the president was sound asleep, possibly drunk, in order to draft a response to an ultimatum where Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev threatened unilateral military intervention in Egypt during the Yom Kippur War to enforce a ceasefire that Israel was reluctant to begin. Did you know that? Kissinger and the others, without waking Nixon, decided to raise the U.S. nuclear alert level to DEFCON 3, the highest it had been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. They also formulated a response and sent it back to Moscow in a letter from Nixon, where they warned of incalculable consequences if the USSR resorted to unilateral action. The next day, after the Soviet Politburo decided to ignore the nuclear alert and back down, saying they'd send only ceasefire observers, Kissinger announced to Nixon, Mr. President, you have won again. You think so? Nixon asked, having slept through most of the action. Or here's another one. Spin the clock back a decade to October 1962, when Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev and JFK were playing their infamous game of chicken, risking nuclear Armageddon. Three days after Kennedy made a speech announcing the quarantine of Cuba, Khrushchev dictated a letter to the U.S. president where he claimed that the Soviet ships headed to Cuba were carrying only ordinary potatoes. If you realize your threats and stop our ships, you will see that they are carrying potatoes. And in this case, I think you will feel ashamed. If I were in your shoes, I'd be shocked. And Khrushchev knows a thing or two about shoes. In a meeting of the Soviet Presidium that same day, Khrushchev blinked. He was now ready to back out and withdraw the Soviet nuclear arms he'd sent to Cuba. The Americans are saying that the missile installation should be dismantled, Khrushchev began. Maybe it should be done. He went on to say that this was not at all capitulation on the Soviet part, because the Americans, too, were scared. He even attempted to crack a joke. Kennedy slept with a wooden knife, he told the Presidium, but the reference fell flat. Why wooden? asked Anastas Mikoyan, one of Moscow's top diplomats during the crisis, prompting Khrushchev to pause and awkwardly explain that a man on his first bear hunt must bring along a wooden knife to use to clean his pants after he shits them in fear. You know... That old wooden knife chestnut. These anecdotes, the stories about how Nixon slept through his triumph in the Yom Kippur War, and how Khrushchev rambled about potatoes and soiled pants at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, these are just two snippets contained in a massive upcoming book about the diplomatic history of the Cold War and the Soviet bid for global power. This week, I spoke to Dr. Sergei Rachenka, the author of To Run the World. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition, and welcome back to The Naked Pravda. This week's show is what you might call a big tease for a big book, because Sergei Rachenka's To Run the World, the Kremlin's Cold War bid for global power, is as large and ambitious as its publication date is far away. In the United States, at least, this book isn't available on Amazon until May 31st, 2024. But don't let that turn you off, because I've got the author for you on the show this week, and who doesn't enjoy a little anticipation? Much of the literature about Soviet foreign policy in the Cold War focuses on either ideology or Moscow's quest for security or outright imperialism. The premise of To Run the World, on the other hand, is that narratives of legitimacy offer crucial insights for understanding and interpreting the underlying motivations of Soviet conduct around the world during this time. 
For example, I mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis a few moments ago. This was a 13-day confrontation in the latter half of October 1962, when the USSR deployed nuclear missiles in Cuba, matching American nuclear missiles deployed in Italy and Turkey. It's widely considered the closest the Cold War ever came to escalating into a full-scale nuclear war. It ended with the USSR withdrawing its missiles after JFK promised not to invade Cuba, where communists led by Fidel Castro seized control just a few years earlier. Castro, incidentally, would go on to be the longest-serving non-royal head of state in the 20th and 21st centuries, acting as Cuba's leader in different capacities for almost 60 years. Anyway, getting back to 1962 and the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy also promised to remove American missiles from Italy and Turkey. But this concession was a secret deal, and the resolution of the missile crisis was ultimately an embarrassment for Moscow. Rajinka argues that Khrushchev's decision to send nukes to Cuba was at least in part a reaction to the seeming unfairness of the presence of U.S. missiles in Turkey and Italy. This presence, even if it didn't matter all that much militarily, mattered a great deal psychologically. And you can't really understand the crisis without this psychological perspective. In his book, Rajinka describes how deep insecurity behind the brave facade of revolutionary hubris influenced Soviet foreign policy, which, and this is another central argument of the book, was more complicated than a simple standoff with Washington. Leaders in Moscow wanted the United States to respect the USSR as a fellow superpower, and needing this respect was itself problematic for the pursuit, but the Kremlin also competed against China for the recognition of the non-Western world as a great revolutionary power on a mission to push back against America. At various turns throughout the Cold War, Moscow was looking over its shoulder at Beijing, worried about its status in the Third World as the leader of anti-imperialism. As the post-war period progressed, however, it became clear that the USSR wasn't America's equal, at least in many key areas. And this realization in Moscow compounded frustrations about unfairness and mistreatment that are still alive and fuming today, especially in Ukraine. But enough of me talking about the book. Let's get to my interview with its author, Dr. Sergei Rodchenko, the Wilson E. Schmidt Distinguished Professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. My first question was, and I'm just going to quote a little bit from, this is right from right at the start of the introduction. Uh, you described the book as, as offering a radical new interpretation of underlying motivations for Soviet foreign policy, focusing on Moscow's narratives of legitimacy and you know how these are negotiated and so on. One of my questions of that, that I had reading through the book, and this is like a, you know, this theme of legitimacy and, um, and respect and recognition, it, it just permeates the book. And I was wondering, do you think that the Soviet leaders themselves if they were to read your book, would they embrace this explanation? Like, would they say like, yes, it is all about, you know, legitimacy and recognition. You're absolutely right. Or would they, do you expect that they would push back on this and say, well, no, no, you know, this is about Marxism or no, this is about uh, hard, objective uh, economic and security interests. Like why, you know, let's not talk about in terms of legitimacy. That makes us sound like we're too emotional or something. I think that they would probably say that, no, they were Marxist-Leninists and, and this is what they believed in and really followed that as, uh, you know, as their heartfelt desires, i.e. the construction of new society, et cetera, et cetera. But you would not expect them to say anything else because they have 
to stick to those narratives, the legitimating narratives and the rationalizing narratives, right? Yeah, we're, we're doing it because we're building you a wonderful society. But really, did they really down below try to do that? Or did they care about their position in the world? Did they care about how the world looks at them and what the world makes of them? And I think it's the latter, even subconsciously, that really defined the way they acted. Now, of course, for historians, this is very difficult to figure this out because, you know, I see myself writing about motivations of these people who may not even themselves realize that they had those motivations. I mean, as a historian, how do you even do that? You know, how do you even do this sort of almost mental, you know, psycho psychoanalysis? And this is where it becomes very interesting because for the first time in this book, I was able to do something that we weren't able to do before, and that is turn quantity into quality. We have now so much in terms of new materials that indicate how those people thought, how they talked from day to day, then from all of this, you know, this conversations, memoranda, from various, you know, dictations, uh, streams of consciousness, we can actually construct a narrative that kind of brings all of those things together and presents their worldview, but also fundamentally the things that they cared about. And the thing that I argue in the book they cared about is their standing, their legitimacy, how others viewed them. You raised this issue of when when Soviet leaders are doing kind of when they're challenging the status quo, I guess, or when they're sort of pushing their luck, maybe you compare it to Raskolnikov in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. And I wonder if you could explain for listeners, because I feel like if you can give them a kind of taste of how you're using this, it'll it'll give people a good idea of why they ought to read the book. I mean, it's in the trail, obviously. I'm, I'm a lover of Dostoevsky, love uh, his work, and including, of course, Crime and Punishment. And I was trying to use some of those analogies in my book, in particular talking about particular Soviet leaders, but then also I talk about that in the conclusion when I talk about Putin. And the thing that, that, that really jumped out at me was how the Soviets, Soviet leaders in particular, how they had this inferiority complex and how they really worried about the fact that they, that whereas the United States as a superpower could do certain things, they were denied those same things. And they felt like they had to prove themselves that they also had the right to do those same things. And, you know, one example of this would be Khrushchev sending missiles to Cuba. Why? If the United States is allowed to send uh, missiles to Turkey, why is it that we are not allowed to send missiles to Cuba? I mean, how unfair is this? What do they think there in Washington? Why, you know, they don't look at us as, as equals. And so that is where this image of Raskolnikov comes in, i.e. the idea that you want to prove something to the world, but fundamentally to yourself. Now, for those readers or listeners who are not familiar with the story, in Crime and Punishment, we have Rodion Raskolnikov, the main character, killing this uh, old lady and her sister, or the old lady on purpose, her, uh, her sister inadvertently by accident. And uh, then he's got this monologue in the book where he tries to explain his motives, like why did he kill us two poor people? And he basically says, well, uh, you know, he want, he explained that in terms of a starting a career and he made a reference to Napoleon. If Napoleon at the start of his career stood before a choice of killing an old lady and her sister, would he not do it? And of course he would do it. But fundamentally, Raskolnikov has this 
idea that he had to prove himself, not even not even so much to the world, but to prove himself to himself, that he had the right to go beyond these conventions, beyond morality, beyond all the constraints, because he is not what is called the Tvair Trajashe in the book. He is not the trembling creature, but he had the right to do it. This is kind of interesting, an interesting psychological portrait of Raskolnikov that I then bring to Khrushchev to say, well, Khrushchev actually also thought in those terms when he thought about projecting Soviet power on the world stage, that the Soviet Union had the right to do it. Why? Why? Who gave the Soviet Union the right? Nobody just did have the right, because the Americans have that right, right? And then in the conclusion, I connect, and this is where the book is very interesting, because unlike most histories of the Cold War, which just deal with the Cold War and don't touch on the present, I take it all the way to the present and indeed connect the Cold War and the post-Cold War, take it all the way to Putin, and then talk about Ukraine in those very terms, that Putin, in his approach to Ukraine, wanted to show that he had the right to kill the old grandma or to kill the old lady and her sister, to prove to himself that he had that right. Of course, he doesn't have that right, but he had to do it psychologically, something like that. So this is where Dostoevsky comes in. You mentioned Khrushchev and, and Cuba being an example of, of Moscow trying or feeling like it needs to prove to itself that it has the right to do something drastic, I suppose. You also acknowledge that Khrushchev may have been, you say he may have been the last romantic in the Kremlin, but there was nothing romantic about, this is, I'm quoting here, nothing romantic about wanting to appear credible. There was nothing romantic about seeking prestige. It was all just a corollary of global leadership. And I wanted to ask you, is the pursuit of global leadership, is that itself romantic? Because this is something you address in the introduction as well, is that you know not all nations in their self-perception think of themselves as as great or world world leading or anything like that. In fact, it's kind of it, that's a bit unusual. <laughs> and 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 one of the takeaways from the book at least as I read it and maybe this could be me bringing some of my own baggage, but it's that uh, the United States for instance does have global leadership aspirations and it kind of pulls it off whereas the Soviet Union had them but failed. And I wondered is the the will to rule the world and uh, to use the title of the book is that not itself romantic or is that something different? So, uh, and the United States is a very good example. Of course, the United States also has this notion of exceptionalism. We know about it. It's very much a part of American identity. You know, if you take that out of America, then America very much loses its purpose on the international stage, right? And the same applies to the Soviet Union. Now you can ask, you know, why is that that some countries have that and others don't? Which is why, by the way, you know, the book deals with countries like the Soviet Union, China, and the United States. Those are big players in this country. Context. But others not, you know, others don't have that. And I don't know how to explain that. But what is clear in the book is that the Soviet Union certainly had this aspiration towards some kind of greatness, uh, saw for itself a position in the global pecking order right next to the United States, wanted American recognition of that Soviet role as right up there next to the United States. But did not, you know, this ambitions that are very persistent, they actually survived the Cold War. And that's the remarkable thing. The you know, ideology goes away, communism goes away. The ambition to be up there in the specking order somehow survives. And we still have it even today, even though in purely material terms, neither the Soviet Union, never mind today's Russia. I mean, they're never, they never were close and uh, will not be close to the United States as material power is absolutely overwhelming, even during the Cold War. But the Soviets had this ambition. They did not have the means. There's a, a Soviet comedy. I'm sure, Kevin, you've seen that comedy where there's this episode where the a guy makes a toast saying, My pradid, говорит, 
My great-grandfather says, I wish to buy a house, but I lack the means. I have the means to buy a goat, but I don't wish it. So let's drink to our wishes, always aligning with our means. Well, in Russia, in the Soviet case, there was a huge gap between means and ambitions. Ambitions were always up there, means were not quite up there. Uh, is that, you know, a romantic impulse? I don't know, I would not call it a romantic, but there's something about it that it's certain, you know, this desire to be up there with the United States, to run the world on par or even together with the, with the United States is, is certainly there. But let me also mention about the title, by the way, to run the world. Where does that come from? That in itself is quite interesting. Uh, so we're talking about 1973. This is uh, a period of detente, a uh, relative relaxation of tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union. Henry Kissinger goes to Moscow to see Brezhnev. That's in preparation for Brezhnev's visit in anticipation of Brezhnev's visit to Washington, D.C. in June 1973. So uh, Kissinger shows up in Moscow, usually the negotiations would take place in the Kremlin, but on this particular occasion, negotiations took place in Zavidova, that, you know, Brezhnev's dacha, that's outside of Moscow, a couple of hours, uh, where they were um, hunting boars. And while they were in a hunting tower, you can imagine Henry Kissinger in a hunting tower together with Brezhnev. Brezhnev told him, listen, I want to tell you something, don't take any notes, but I want to agree with the United States that together we will run the world. Something, you know, I'm paraphrasing. I'm actually paraphrasing Kissinger paraphrasing because Kissinger later goes to Nixon and tells him about this. But to me, this captures this whole ambition of the Soviet leadership, this ambition without means, but the ambition to be up there with the United States and to, to decide the fate of the world. Why does Moscow have that? I have no idea, but it's clearly there. It's there and it defines the Cold War in many ways. You mentioned that the these concerns or this this interest in, if not running the world, then having a leading role in running the world, it survives the fall of the Soviet Union, it survives the the death of the Marxist ideology, and so on. We still have it. To, we still see it today in Moscow. Would you place your book in within the literature of the psychology of resentment, or is it like a corrective on that? Because I know that a lot of the a lot of the writing that happens on Russia today, people write that it's politics of resentment that drive sort of the way that Moscow views the the post. Cold War period, and that you have to understand, you know, why Moscow perceives the security situation in Europe as it does is because it's driven by resentment of the way that the 90s were handled and things like that. But reading your book, it's I wonder if this concept of resentment is really very different from all of the, the concerns about being treated unfairly and not being recognized as legitimate and so on. It seems like it's, it, there's a continuum here. And so I wonder if if this like realization that, oh, the R Russians are resentful of, of how the 90s went, it's like, well, well, that didn't start in the 90s. It didn't start in the 90s. They've been resentful. I don't know since when, but if you take my book as the starting point, I would say since the Second World War, because the Soviet Union emerges from the Second World War as, you know, this great power in Europe, able to define the contours of European peace, of, of future of Europe. Uh, really not expecting the United States to be involved in Europe very much at all, uh, but hoping basically to manage Europe more or less by itself, but also with the help of the British. This is where I start my book, by the way, and, and this is where I describe Stalin's aspirations, what he wanted to accomplish. And then uh, this vision of theirs kind of falls apart because the Cold War begins and Soviet ambitions are then trimmed. They're being pushed against by the United States. 
And from that, you get the sense of, oh, they are not recognizing us. You know, they're not giving us enough of, they're not respecting our so-called legitimate interests, whatever. The, and, and this is a big problem, right? Because the perception of legitimate interests, of Moscow's legitimate interest in Moscow, was very different from the perce- perception of uh, Moscow's legitimate interest elsewhere. That is where you've got a kind of incompatibility between these different visions. And when the Americans come in and push against the Soviet ambitions, what we have in Moscow is a sense of, oh, you know, the sense of resentment that they don't give us our proper place that we think we deserve because of our great contribution to the defeat of Nazi Germany, because of our great science, because of, you know, our ideology and so on and so forth. We deserve this, but we're being denied this. You know, what's going on here? And that is combined early on in the 1950s with great optimism that history is on their side, i.e. on the Soviet side, because their economies grow and there are are scientific breakthroughs. We've got the Sputnik in space. We've got Gagarin in the 1960s. I do not regard the first man in space as a sign of the weakening of the, uh, of the uh, free world. But I do regard the total mobilization of men and uh, things for the service of the communist bloc over the last years as a source of great danger to us. And I would say we're going to have to live with that danger and hazard uh, through much of the rest of this century. And the atomic weapons, which is a very interesting element in this Soviet psychology, how they approach international relations. You know, once Khrushchev gets the bomb, he realizes that he's basically invincible. You know, he cannot, he will not be invaded. He actually says, I described that in, in the book, he says that he was really worried about nuclear war. But then he thought for a while about it and realized that he would never have to use nuclear weapons. And then, as he says in his memoirs, oh, and then I could sleep again. Uh, so this notion of invincibility, this notion of, you know, being able to defeat anybody because they have this nuclear power also leads to this great uh, chutzpah on the part of the Soviets and advancing their interests throughout the globe. And we get into a series of crises. I described them in the book from 1958 in the Middle East uh, to the Berlin crisis, ultimately the Cuban Missile Crisis with Khrushchev really driving this process because A, he's resentful, and B, he thinks that he can actually get very far because he's now invincible because of nuclear power. Some quick context about the Berlin crisis, to which we'll return very soon. In the summer of 1961, at a meeting in Vienna with JFK, Khrushchev demanded the withdrawal of all armed forces from Berlin, including the Western armed forces in West Berlin. The East German government was keen to stop the brain drain of people fleeing to the West through Berlin, which would remain a divided, occupied city until German reunification in 1990. When Kennedy refused to abandon West Berlin, Khrushchev permitted the East Germans to close the border around the city and construct the infamous Berlin Wall. In October 1961, there was a brief standoff at Checkpoint Charlie, the best-known Berlin Wall crossing point, but Washington and Moscow withdrew their tanks and the confrontation ended peacefully, aside from that awful wall. In the chapter that you mentioned about this immediate after, right in the beginning, I guess, maybe it's chapter one even, about the immediate aftermath of World War II, the post-war period, although I wonder how much longer we're going to use that phrase because it's like getting confusing. <laughs> There's been so many more wars. You mentioned an apparently offhand comment by that Stalin made to the U.S. ambassador to the USSR, where Stalin responded to sort of some congratulations about capturing Berlin by saying, oh, well, Tsar Alexander... Alexander got all the way to Paris, <laughs> and that this this comment got back to Washington, obviously, and it, it sort of nurtured 
suspicions or, con- or and concerns that Stalin's appetites were you know limitless and that only American uh, resistance could save the rest of Europe. And you you include this anecdote when discussing kind of like the chicken or the egg reasoning that surrounds thinking about U.S. deterrence and Soviet expansion in Europe and elsewhere. And I wonder, in this research, in researching this book, how often did you encounter what seemed to be sort of small comments by big players like this, maybe even maybe even jokes, that go on to influence and kind of snowball and become and have big consequences? Obviously, the book is, is full of this kind of anecdotes of various kinds. The anecdote that you mentioned about Tsar Alexander is a very well-known one. And actually, I'm surprised, you know, I've been writing this book for 10 years. I'm surprised that I mentioned that because I thought maybe I would not have because it's well-known. And there's so much new stuff that's there that nobody has ever seen. Now, where does it come from? And that, you know, allows me a little bit, I think, to talk about the sources here. So there's a general perception that uh, materials in Moscow are somehow off, you know, off limits and very difficult to get to the archives. And this was partly true uh, throughout the, it sort of closed down in early in, in the 90s, in 93, 94, things kind of closed down. Then there was just a trickle of materials in the late 90s and 2000s when I was researching my PhD, for example. I, any document that I found was just this great, was great joy for me because there was just so such, such a dearth of materials. But then something changed, and that's actually a remarkable story in itself. But in the early, in some like 2013, 2014, suddenly they started declassifying a vast amount of materials. And what what used to be a trickle became an absolute stream of documentation. And um, uh, with Stalin, it's not as good as with Khrushchev and Brezhnev. And so one of the things that, you know, one of the biggest contributions of this book, I think, is the coverage of Khrushchev and Brezhnev. Because what we have in, in the cases with those two is, A, we have almost daily conversations with between them and various other party functionaries or foreign leaders, various visitors. In Khrushchev's case, and this is kind of bizarre, it doesn't exist in Brezhnev's case, but in Khrushchev's case, believe it or not, we have dictations, i.e. this is a guy who didn't write much. He didn't read much. He didn't write much. But what he liked to do was talk. Sounds like a certain American politician. <laughs> <laughs> well, he talked and he had a stenographer. He would go there and just take down all his thoughts, etc. And, you know, we have some of that for Brezhnev, but mainly for Khrushchev. And uh, so I was able to use all of those papers. And we're talking about hundreds and thousands and thousands of pages, hundreds of documents, thousands of documents, really. Documenting, it's almost like being a psychiatrist and sitting in a room with a patient where they kind of vent their frustrations, etc. So they recount all those, you know, the various anecdotes and, and so on and so forth. And I'll give you just one example of how significant this may be. 1961, this is a crucial year during the Cold War. Why? Because tensions over Berlin are coming to this really hot point. Uh, there's fear that, you know, with, the, with Khrushchev pushing his Berlin ultimatum to get the Americans out of West Berlin, with Kennedy kind of pushing back against this, there's a real fear that a nuclear war might actually erupt. Khrushchev keeps trying to push the Americans out. He goes to Vienna, he meets with Kennedy. You know, this is the meeting that ends with that very famous remark where Kennedy says this is going to be a very cold winter. Well, in during that summer, 61, Khrushchev repeatedly discusses the Berlin crisis in his various conversations. And, of course, he ultimately decides against pushing it to the brink, and he decides to construct the Berlin Wall. So that's how we end up with the Berlin Wall, right? Because he had to stop the outflow of, of, of people from, from East Berlin into West Berlin. Yeah, he couldn't get the Americans out of there, so he decides to construct the wall in August 1961. But then he tries to kind of rationalize that in one of his conversations about the Berlin crisis, he, he suddenly starts 
recalling his experience during the Second World War. And he recalls in particular the first weeks when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union. And he was at that time in the Kiev, you know, the, in Ukraine uh, with, with military command. And uh, uh, one of his tank commanders, a guy called Nikolai Vashugin, turned up and uh, said, oh, you know, we lost our tank, a whole tank army, and I feel responsible. Um, I don't know what I should do. And then uh, Vashugin... And that's, you know, I'm just recounting here Khrushchev's recollection of this episode. Vashukin suddenly puts out a gun and blows his brains out right in front of Khrushchev. A pretty dramatic story. But what makes it even more interesting is that Khrushchev recounts the story in the context of what? A discussion of the, of the Berlin crisis. So here the two superpowers are coming sort of head to head in Berlin. And he's thinking of the irrationality of human beings. He's thinking back to this episode with Bashugin, thinking, why the hell did he blow his brains out? It didn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense, but he still did it. So in this context, he's sort of thinking, well, maybe Kennedy will do the same thing. He'll start a nuclear war, although it doesn't seem like he would be likely to, but we just don't know because look at Bashugin, look, look at what he did. So I kind of start, you know, when you collect all these anecdotes and you try to psychoanalyze this people, which is slightly dangerous, you know, I'm not a certified psychiatrist, but you start to see how they thought and, uh, and why certain decisions were made. And so now we can see why Khrushchev decided to back off in Berlin. One of the impressions I got reading this is that, and I, I'm, if, if this is a misperception, please correct me, but it's that in pursuit of being a great power and collecting these client states, which are sort of a necessity to for, for that greatness, these, these great powers, or at least in the Soviet Union's case, they're just sort of creating problems for themselves, and they're they're not. It's not even clear that they're necessarily gaining anything beyond this sort of this difficult to define legitimacy and and um, prominence and so on. And that they're actually they're losing resources, they're losing uh, sort of diplomatic weight at times, and that it's not worth the trouble. And yet they do it in, in, regardless for the prestige. And I wonder. This isn't imperialism anymore. They're not getting like access to markets. They're not getting like raw materials or like, is that, is it, or is all that happening sim simultaneously? I don't want to be monocausal in my explanation for, you know, Soviet exploits in the, in the, what was then called the third world, we now call the global south. But I think, yeah, I think strategically, some of those areas were important. For example, Soviet Minister of Defense thought in, in those terms, oh, let's have a base in Kamran Bay, you know, in Vietnam, this is great. Or how about a base in Angola? This is going to be great. That's important. Economically, I don't think it was that important. So Soviet imperialism was never the same as, uh, as, as British imperialism, for example, for which trade was important, you know, extracting resources from uh, those colonies was important. The Soviet Union had most of what it needed anyway. It was only Stalin who sometimes wanted to get some, you know, rubber or from from China or like oil from Xinjiang, uh, stuff like that. Stalin thought on those terms. But basically, basically for the Soviets, it was not a commercial proposition. What was it then? You know, if you take, if you say, yes, strategic rationale was there, certainly not economic rationale, certainly that was not there. But then, you know, the then this, is there something else? And what I argue in the book is, yes, there is something else, and that is this notion that the Soviet want, you know, the Soviets wanted to project their global leadership to this audience of, of nascent, you know, of, of emerging, of the emerging global south, because they wanted to be recognized. And for that, you need an audience. And who's the audience? Well, those people in Africa, those people in Asia, those people who could say, yes, you know, we endorse the Soviet uh, cause and the Soviet leadership. So for them, it was very much part of their identity, and that mattered to them greatly. And that was for 
them an attribute of great power, having this kind of recognition. Now, the problem, as I described in the book, is that they wanted to be recognized also by the United States as a kind of a co-equal great power. And at the same time, they wanted to be recognized by the folks um, in the global south, especially China, by the way, especially China. China plays a huge role in the book as a revolutionary power. But there was a contradiction between two uh, these two forms of recognition, because what you need to do as a revolutionary power is often very different from what you would need to do as a kind of a global great power. An example is the Vietnam War. For the Soviets, as a co-manager of the world with the United States, the key thing to do in Vietnam was to somehow bring it to, you know, a close negotiated solution. And they were kind of prodding their Vietnamese allies towards that sometimes. But they also realized they couldn't prod them too much because they also wanted their Vietnamese allies to recognize them as true supporters of revolutionary struggle. And uh, that really annoyed the Americans. Kissinger and Nixon, you know, Nixon and Kissinger had this idea of linkage where we give you a good relationship. We try to build a cooperation with you as great powers, but you help us in Vietnam and the Soviets were just not really forthcoming all that much. And there's some, it's in relation to Vietnam, there's some really fantastic anecdotes in the book. I don't so oh, my favorite one is, uh, we're talking about May 1972, Nixon turns up in Moscow for the summit, in the course of which there's this a really nice conversation with Brezhnev. And uh, at one point, Brezhnev, according to Nixon in his memoirs, you know, Nixon talks about it, Brezhnev starts shouting and says, the United States have their, you know, have blood on their hands. Look what they're doing in Vietnam. This is so horrible, you know, imperialism, et cetera, et cetera. Nixon writes in his memoirs, I could not understand this guy who was just the nice, you know, the nicest of all nice guys. You know, we're having such a wonderful conversation. Started shouting all of a sudden. I couldn't understand why he did this. Now that we have the Russian record, we can see what actually happened. So Brezhnev wanted to do that in order to have the record of conversation with Nixon where he criticized the United States for their horrible crimes in Vietnam. Why did he want to have this record of conversation? He literally took it to the party meeting, to the plenum, and he literally read out that part where he shouted at Nixon, quoting verbatim his remarks. And then he took it to the Vietnamese and said, look, we're defending Vietnam. We're true revolutionaries. Look what it's right here in the record. He took it to Castro, who really, you know, he really valued Castro's opinion. He wanted to be recognized by Castro, et cetera. So he took it to Castro saying, look at, you know, how we're defending Vietnam. So this is, it's, it's right there, right? The striving for recognition by their allies and clients as a revolutionary power, even while he also wanted this recognition from Nixon of being in Moscow and recognized the Soviet Union as a great power. But there's, a, of course, a contradiction between the two. And thank you for mentioning uh, China. Obviously, China is a huge piece of the book, and my questions haven't really broached it very much, partly because of my own background academically and so on. But definitely, listeners, if you're interested in China, this is also a book for you. <laughs> can autocrats, can dictators, bad guys, can they seek legitimacy in peace? Like, for example, in advocating disarmament or arms control? Like, or is, is the autocrat's legitimacy fundamentally aggressive? And this obviously has, you know, repercussions for when thinking about Putin and other, other baddies today. 
So that is a super interesting question. And I would say in Brezhnev's case in particular, he really latched onto this agenda of peace. And for him, it became so much more important than all the doctrine of Marxism-Leninism and, you know, and Das Kapital, the Communist Manifesto, which, you know, he may have read the Communist Manifesto. I'm sure he never read Das Kapital. But anyway, he became really concerned about peace and uh, he would replace a Soviet communist ideology with this notion of promoting peace as a goal in itself. He would meet with Nixon and in meetings with Nixon, he would, he would talk about this saying, we have a special responsibility as two great powers to make sure that a nuclear war doesn't break out. And he would just go on and on and on about it. And you can gain from this the clear picture that for him, advocacy of, of global peace and his personal role in the world and in history, I mean, that was a huge part of his legitimacy discourse, right? For him, it was important to be doing that because he felt legitimate, legitimized by this. Now, then we, we go to Gorbachev and we find some of the same themes. And this is, by the way, one of the things where I think the book is going to be a little bit controversial. We find, you know, this is going to be contentious, contentious point, one of the contentious points of the book. We find some continuity here with Gorbachev as well in his advocacy of universal human values. Once you start going into this and what he meant by this, and for, for this, of course, we have the entire, you know, various records of all bureau meetings where he talked about it. For Gorbachev, universal human values fundamentally meant peace. He wanted to promote global peace. He wanted to wind down the Cold War. He felt that this was his historical responsibility, his historical role. So I find here actually a lot of continuity between Brezhnev and Gorbachev, which is sort of counterintuitive. I think a lot of people will find it jarring that I talk about Gorbachev in those terms. But I find actually that this notion of peace and notion of special responsibility of the two superpowers is there for both Brezhnev and for for Gorbachev. So both of them felt that they were legitimated by the idea of peace. But this is not always the case for autocrats. So look at Putin, for example. You know, that's obviously a different story. And here we start getting into this very interesting discussion of the type of recognition that people want or leaders want. So, you know, you could be recognized. We're talking about the importance of recognition as a, as a, as a way towards legit legitimization. Then we could talk about, about recognition as, for example, a partner of the United States. This was clearly important. For Brezhnev, he wanted to be recognized. That's you know, hence the let's run the world together, right? Hence this whole idea about running the world together with the United States to be recognized as a partner of the United States. And you could derive legitimacy from being recognized as a partner of the United States. But at the same time, you could also derive legitimacy from being recognized as the adversary of the United States. Except you would be recognized by different audiences. And that was true for the Soviet Union, much as it is true for, for Russia today. In other words, for the Soviet Union being recognized as a revolutionary power, i.e. an adversary of the United States, for example, in Vietnam, in Africa, and various other places, that also was kind of legitimating in itself. We have a, an interesting issue here of what do you really want to be legitimated by? A partnership with the United States or a conflict with the United States? And I think it's both in many ways. I think it's both. And so I talk about that in the book, and I think the same model can, it can be applied to understand, understand how Putin sees himself and how he sees himself being legitimated by conflict with the United States. I'm going to be mixing up political science terms here and possibly confusing bits of your own book, but how much of this is, is like uh, sort of system versus individual agency? Because I, I mean, I know that part of the premise of this book is you're looking at individuals and you're looking at, it's assumed that the, the significance here is the fact that individuals do have some degree of very significant agency to change and affect the course of 
human events and you know nations themselves are only i mean their policies are made by fallible emotional people and so we have to look at people but i wonder you talk about the continuity of of peace promotion between or peace legitimacy let's say between brezhnev and, and gorbachev how much continuity generally do you see and, we, and in the past we, we were already talking about resentment being a kind of uh, stable theme of uh, Moscow's perspective on the world and on the West and so on. How much like variation do you see across the leaders in Moscow when it comes to these these issues? Well, clearly, Kevin, leaders matter. Uh, you know, I can talk all I want about continuity between Brezhnev and, and, and Gorbachev, but let's say, you know, Brezhnev sent forces to Afghanistan, Gorbachev pulled them out. There's a big difference there, right? We cannot, you know, it's, it's obvious. You know, Brezhnev sent forces to Czechoslovakia in 1968. Gorbachev did not intervene in Eastern Europe when things started to falling apart in the late 1980s. Clearly, there are big differences there. For listeners who might not be familiar with the two conflicts Dr. Rodchenka just mentioned, the Warsaw Pact invasion of Czechoslovakia was in August 1968, when a quarter of a million troops, led by the Soviet Union, later rising to half a million men, entered the Czechoslovak Socialist Republic and halted the Prague Spring, ending cultural and economic liberalization reforms introduced by Alexander Dubček. More than a decade later, Brezhnev would launch another armed conflict, this one lasting almost a decade itself. The Soviet-Afghan War began in December 1979 and ended in February 1989 costing the lives of roughly 15,000 Soviet soldiers, tens of thousands of Afghan combatants on both sides of the conflict, and up to 2 million Afghan civilians, with millions more wounded or displaced. The Soviet intervention in Afghanistan came as Moscow was feeling pinched on its western flank, almost immediately after NATO decided to deploy hundreds of upgraded nuclear missiles in Western Europe, including 108 Pershing II medium-range missiles in West Germany utilizing a loophole in the SALT II Arms Reduction Treaty. So leaders, individual dispositions matter. Individual, you know, dis individual visions of kind of legitimating discourses matter. So for Gorbachev, seeing his role in history as, as a person who kind of ended the Cold War, you know, that was hugely important for him. And that, I think, really influenced some of his behavior, certainly in Eastern Europe. Things were somewhat different for Brezhnev, things were different for Khrushchev, and Stalin presents also a very, very different picture. I attribute large, a large degree of the blame for the Cold War on Stalin and not on systemic factors necessarily. So as a historian, you know, I shy away from this grand the systemic kind of IR, international relations based explanations about, you know, struggle of great powers and so on and so forth. I really try to focus on leaders and how they made their daily decisions um, of taking a very, very close look at that personal, personal element. So yeah, that's why I see a lot of continuity, but that's also why I can see, I can perceive change. And that's how I explain change. When different people come with different ideas, we have change. So it cannot, things just don't go on in the same way. At the same time, though, and I hate to contradict myself, there's still continuity, right? Even though new people come, still there are certain things that carry on with, from, from the previous era, whether it's resentment, whether it's this desire of recognition by the United States, desire of kind of special status, desire for greatness. And is that unique to the Soviet Union? I would argue it's not even unique to the Soviet Union. I mean, China is a, is a, is a prominent fixture of the book. I think a third of the book is really about China. And uh, I find the same motivations underpinning Chinese foreign policy, desire for leadership, desire for recognition, quarrel with the Soviet Union, for leadership in the communist movement, how that really, really was a kind of a key aspect of Chinese foreign policy, of their identity, of their definition of who they are. So it's not a unique with Soviet thing. I think it applies across, across the board to different countries and to different historical eras as well. 
Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week. Thank you.